And every now and then, my mind would float away to far out. Maharaji died. And I'd experience him saying to me, just attend to your business. Cut out all that melodramatic crap. Just do your thing. I was looking to get into a little self-pity place, you know. Oh, God, Maharaji. Welcome, everyone, to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. I'm Jackie Dobrinska, your host, and you, you are the Ramdas community. Today, we dive into episode 219, Death of the Guru. Without knowing the talk, that title brings up uh, this lovely old saying. It's by a ninth century Buddhist sage, Lin Shi, who told a monk, if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him meaning those who think they've found all the answers in any spiritual tradition need to start questioning. And as we know, Ramdas was this intersection of Buddhism and bhakti, and his main bhakti technique was uh, guru kripa, or devotion to the guru. And I think for many of us who grew up in this sort of Western training of the mind, this devotion to a guru can feel sort of odd at times. It's sort of I don't know, maybe it reminds us of worshiping the golden cow, or maybe it's like giving up our rugged independence, which is the foundation of this national myth we typically live in. But for those of us to make sense of this technique and practice, we sort of have to understand the jump from dualism to non-dualism. Sort of like when we jump to Newtonian physics to quantum physics. They're just different worlds. And one of the ways we explain this, I think that we can make sense of it, is from a story from the Ramayana with Hanuman, who was the great monkey god, right? He's also the symbol of a disciplined mind and um, a fully, a full focus on the presence of the divine self or the uh, Lord within the heart. And so the story goes that when Rama asked Hanuman, how do you look upon me? The great monkey gives a three-part answer. When I believe I'm the body, then I'm your faithful servant. When I know I'm the soul, I know myself to be a spark of your eternal light. And when I have the vision of truth, you and I, my Lord, are one of the same. And Ramdas talks about this quote in this talk. You know, the sage Vyasa tells us that the awareness that we are constantly loved by the divine is the greatest force that allows us to surrender spontaneously to the inner source, to that inner guru, to the thing, the thing that we seek, the thing that's seeking us. Um, and when we can tune into that, then those outside graspings sort of melt away. So that's what this talk is about. It's about Ram Das talking about his relationship to Maharaji, especially after he left his body. And this jump that he made from devotion to this outer form um, to finding that inner guru, that wisdom, Atman, God, self, whatever you call it. And um, how part of it is giving space to all of the different parts of ourselves and how important it is to trust our hearts and connect to that um, intuition. So I hope you enjoy. It's a really lovely episode. Um, there's a bunch more in there too I'm sure you're going to enjoy. And if you like this talk, uh, consider joining our next discussion meetup on February 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can sign up for it 
at ramdas.org slash fellowship. You actually sign up to get emails that include the invitation. And then there's lots of other opportunities as well to check out. And speaking of connections, you might want to consider joining us in Boone, North Carolina, August 24th through 28th for our second annual Summer Mountain Retreat. You'll be there with Krishna Das and Dr. Sarah King, um, Nina Rao, David Nickturn, East Forest, and many others. So for more information, go to ramdas.org slash mountain retreat. We hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, whatever good may come from these teachings, may it benefit all of us in our daily lives and may it ripple out into the world. We thank each of you for being here, as well as the many people on the back end that bring this to you, including our sponsors. Have a lovely day. Enjoy. Namaste and blessings. Um, <clears throat> at my mother's funeral, an interesting thing happened. besides my mother dying. Um, every year at the anniversary of uh, my father and mother's wedding, they would exchange one red rose. And at the funeral, um, her casket was covered with a blanket of red roses. And in the front row, in the family morning pew of the temple, was my father, my eldest brother, who is a um, uh, Long Island, New York uh, stockbroker attorney, and his wife, my middle brother, who was at the time um, under the distinct impression that he was Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, myself, and I don't know who I thought I was, <laughs> was a motley crew, to say the least. My father is a very uh, conservative um, attorney, not what you would call a mystic. As the uh, casket was being wheeled down from the altar um, after the prayers, taken out to the hearse, as it passed our pew, one red rose fell off the blanket at my father's feet. Now, only the people in the front row saw that. We all knew that they exchanged one red rose, and our eyes were all glued on that rose. The casket was wheeled out, and it was time to go to the cars. My father stooped down, picked up the rose, and took it, holding it, into the car. And we sat in the black limousine with people coming up to the window expressing their sorrow. 
Nobody said a word in the limousine. We were all looking at the rose. Finally, my um, brother, Jesus, <laughs> said, well, it looks like Mother sent you a last message. Now, he's speaking to quite a mixed bag in that car. But at that moment, everybody in the car agreed. That's pretty far out. <laughs> Nobody even laughed. I mean, most of the things that my brother says, you know, like, are, are treated with a certain kind of uh, ginger levity. Well, it shook everybody in the car considerably, and my father's next thought was how he would preserve the rose. <clears throat> so my uncle found a process whereby they put the rose in a glass that's full of water, of some liquid, and the rose is eternally preserved. So we had it in case enshrined, and we put it on the mantelpiece in front of Mother's picture. Now, uh, as time passed, it turned out that the process wasn't quite as foolproof as they had thought it would be, and slowly the water started to turn black, and the rose started to wilt until we were faced with what to do with this um, thing, right? At which point my father, after a proper time and in a very genuine way, uh, married a very, very wonderful woman. And so it turned out that this um, rose ended up in a closet in the barn, along with other memorabilia that are too precious to get rid of, but too horrible to manifest. That's the closest I've come to a good example of spiritual materialism. Or known as clinging to the high. Uh, last um, <clears throat> September, um, Neem Karoli Baba, who has certainly been my connection and continues to be, dropped his body. For those of you that would like another euphemism, he died. <laughs> um, Now, it's interesting how you react to your guru dropping dead. 
And I would say that all of us that were connected to Maharaji did a different take of it. There are a number of stories connected with him which give one um, food for thought concerning this matter of his dying. One story that I've told before concerns him walking with an old devotee and Maharaji suddenly looked up in the sky and he said, he closed his eyes and he said, oh, so-and-so Ma, this very loving woman devotee in another city, he said she just died. And then he laughed and laughed and laughed. And the old devotee said, why you butcher? What are you laughing for if she died? And Maharaji said, would you rather that I act like one of, I'm one of the puppets? Would you like me to make believe that this is a sad moment? Um, then there's an interesting story. When he was sitting with a group of, dar of uh, devotees at a darshan, and a man, and he said to uh, them, somebody's just arrived, who is it? And he said, nobody's come. And he said, somebody's just come. And a man rushed in, and he said to the man, you've come because so-and-so is dying. And the man said, how did you know? Nobody, even the family, doesn't know. Maharaj, he said, what do you mean, how do I know? I, mean, I know, right? Maharaj, he says, well, I'm, tell I'm not going to go to him. He's going to die. I'm not going to go. They said, oh, please, Maharaji, come. Maharaji says, no. He said, here, give him this banana. Tell him to eat this banana and he'll be all right. <laughs> and so they rushed back with the banana, fed the man the banana, and the man dropped dead. <laughs> That's true. It's an interesting one, isn't it? The man was suffering a great deal. Maharaji said, have him eat the banana, he'll be all right. Maharaji had kept a diary, and in this diary for some years, every day, he would write the date and the place that he was in, wherever he was moving to, and then he would keep the significant events of the day, which involved two pages of Ram, 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 Ram. And every day he would be locked into a room and left alone to do this work. And he would do the two pages of the significant events of the day. And so there were these pages, in fact, these books of Ram, 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 dated each day, two pages per day for some years. Without a day missed, 
And the books were always moved. Wherever he went, they were taken. On Sunday, he did the Ram, 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 Ram. Then he dated the book for Monday, and he did the Ram, 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 Ram in advance. And then he dated it for Tuesday, and he turned to the woman who was uh, the Sidima, who was is an extraordinarily pure being of just incredible love and light. And he said to her, here, I'm all done. You take care of it now. You write Ram Ram. She said, oh, no, Babaji. Yes, you take care of it. He was, I'm all done. And Monday night in a different city, he had a heart attack and died. Now, uh, you know, in Tibet, uh, there's a thing about high beings roughly knowing the moment they're going to die because they see the past, present, future. They know the whole drama. And I've uh, humorously told about something which actually happened of one Tibetan Lama who sent out postcards saying, next Thursday at two, I will be leaving my body if you'd care to come by. Right. And then people gathered and he turned around three times, went into Samadhi and left his body. Maharaji experienced a heart problem on the train and he got off the train and he sat on the ground by the side of the road and uh, just sitting in the dirt by the side of the road and uh, then he said, take me to Vrindavan, which is a very holy city, the city where Krishna danced for the gopis, where uh, Hanuman temple was. And he was taken to a hospital and they put tubes in his arms, his nose, just like everybody else. I mean, totally humdrum. And then he came out of the um, faint, and he pulled the tubes out, and he said, Jagadish Hari, Jagadish Hari, and he died. Which means, Lord who makes the universe revolve. When I received the uh, cable that Maharaji had left his body, um, the cable came with some misspellings, as is quite common in cables from India. And it said, um, Babaji left his bojay in Vrindavan, and my father received the cable. And he said, he said, there is this cable, but he says, I don't understand a word of it. It's one of those Indian things. He says, Babaji, he had written it out just phonetically, Babaji left his bojay Brindaban. He says, what does it mean? I said, well, it must mean that Maharaji died. 
And my father and his wife and my stepmother immediately went into, oh, that's terrible. Oh, you, oh, you know. And I stood there and I was very um, curious to see what my reaction would be. I mean, imagine if you're a heroin addict and find out your connection's just been busted. I mean, you got about six hours. But the interesting thing was nothing happened. That's pretty interesting. And I had some people that were waiting to see me, a married couple with some marital difficulty. And I said to uh, my folks, excuse me, I've got to go out and see these people. I went out and I sat down and they were telling me their side of the fight and all that sort of thing. And every now and then, my mind would float away to far out, Maharaji died. And I'd experience him saying to me, just attend to your business. <laughs> Cut out all that melodramatic crap. Just do your thing. I was looking to get into a little self-pity place, you know. Oh, God, Mark. And uh, as the news spread among uh, many of the devotees on the East Coast, we all gathered up at the forum. And um, it was not until we did an arti, that is the, uh, an offering of light to the guru together, that I finally started to cry. But the interesting thing was, as I was crying, there's this other little being in me all the time who's saying, crying. You go, ah, crying. No. And the thing was that the closest I could notice was that the crying was the crying of bliss. It was not the crying of pain. That I was blissing out. Which is exactly what happened to me whenever I get near Maharaji. And within a week, uh, 20, 22 of us flew to India for the fire ceremonies and so on. He had already been cremated, but we went for the ceremony. And all the time I was in India, I kept crying quietly, and crying and crying and crying. But all of the crying was total bliss. I was just, it was like a two week darshan of his. I was like, I was with him for two weeks because I was with the other devotees, and just as it says in the Bible, Christ, where two are gathered in my name, there I am. The purity of the way in which we were all together in that spirit made that manifest, and I could feel that presence. One of the reasons I went to India, I think, I thought, why do I have to go to India? After all, 
I don't have to go there to honor Maharaji since everything I do all day long is honoring Maharaji. I'm dedicating, my whole life is dedicated to him, not by choice. I don't have any choice. Maybe I'm going to India, not for my own personal feelings. I don't have any feelings about it. And I felt there was a propriety in going. And then I also felt that the devotees in India who were very used to having him with them all the time, they were going to feel the loss most strongly. I had already been banished 18 months before. And I had realized that there was no way you could get away from them anyway. He had said to me in India in 71, he said, um, I'll always be in communion with you. And he said, uh, and the one I've used that's really I've counted on is he says, I'd never let you do anything wrong in America, which has led me to be totally outrageous, by the way. <laughs> Figuring it's his problem, not mine. When I reflect back on it, it awes me that it was Maharaji sitting on a table with a blanket in a little village in India. Who, um, touched me in some way or other, such that everything that happened after that through me, took on a certain quality that it had not had prior to that. And that quality was reflected, for example, in the book Be Here Now, which I consider his book, not my book. And the result was, if you look at the letters that come in, that literally hundreds of thousands of people experienced a certain kind of connection through that book which was him sitting on his table in a little village in India with his blanket. No big hustle, no big showbiz routine. Just sitting there. And I began to be in awe of the power of the spirit. It's interesting to me, especially in view of the American scene at the moment, and my own behavior as well, Yeah. Yeah. Ah. That um, all the time I was uh, with Maharaji, as I've said before, there was no time I ever found either a place where he was or a place where he wasn't. That is, he defied every definition I had of what a human being was about. Okay, I've said this many times, so. There was nowhere I could hide from his mind because he knew where I was, what I was thinking even if I went in the bathroom and locked the door. 
There was no dirty thought I could have that he didn't sit and light. Ha, ah, here we are. But yet, every time I thought I'd labeled him, he wasn't that either. I've told before just that little routine that's so delightful of uh, having a friend come to visit me and, and taking to Maharaji thinking, Maharaji will really snow the guy because it's somebody from the West who's very snowable. Right? And I take the person to Maharaji. Maharaji says to him, um, come from America? And I says, yeah. You have a, you're, you're uh, from New York? No, Maharaj, I'm from California. You have a very good spiritual sister? No, Maharaj, I'm an only child. <laughs> By which time I'm cringing, you know, saying, come on, Maharaj, you do your stuff. Come on, no, come on, don't. Uh, uh, But he had a way of totally foiling my will, desire to program him. He just wouldn't be who I wanted him to be. When I decided he was stupid, he was bright. When I decided he was bright, he was stupid. When I decided he was loving, he was fierce. When I decided he was fierce and cold, he was the most loving being I could imagine. Because there was no clinging in him. There was no form place where he clinged. He didn't have a model in his head. There wasn't anybody in there thinking, I'm Maharaji. <laughs> and I'll do this for Ramdas, and that'll... He'll certainly be impressed. <laughs> That's the way I do it, not the way he does it. There was one point in my relation with Maharaji where I was sitting across the uh, courtyard from him. And I thought, gee, what am I doing sitting here? Well, this is just another guy. I mean, he isn't what it is. That's just a man in a blanket. And everybody else was up r rubbing his feet and hanging out and clinging and trying to get more. And I had been doing that for some years. And now I was sitting opposite. I didn't even want to walk over there. And I thought, gee, I, if, you know, the connection between us, every time I'd come near him, he'd throw me out. He'd say, go to Rameshwar, or go to Puri, or go to Banaras, or go to Delhi. I'd come in for five minutes. Everybody else could hang out with him. And I'd come and he'd throw me out which was hell on my image of myself as the leading devotee. And I was sitting opposite him thinking, gee, I'm really not attached to that form. I love him so much, but yet I don't feel the need to cling to that because that isn't what it is. Whatever it is is much more profound than that. That's a doorway to it, but I've been worshiping the doorpost. You know, I've been rubbing the doorpost and bringing flowers to the doorpost. And all the time it wasn't the doorpost. You know, that was just the doorpost. And if I looked through, 
But every time I'd sit in front of him and I'd think, this time I'm not going to get sucked in. See, I'm not going to get sucked in by his little thing about here's an apple, how much does cinnamon cost in America? You know, his, the profound secrets he passes on all day. So I decided I'd focus on my Ajna and go to another plane and I'd meet him somewhere else. So I went in and in and suddenly I started to shake and all the Shakti poured through me and I was going into bliss states. And Maharaji was sitting there, and, and Maharaji started to snore. <laughs> and I heard the snoring out of the corner of my ear, and I thought, you don't imagine at this profound moment he's going to sleep, you know. And then he sat up out of his snoring, and he turned to the translator, and he said, ask Ram Dass how much Stephen makes in America. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I don't have to come back, do I? And he brought me down. He just, he, he really ruined my high. And I came down, I said, $30,000. And then I'd try to go back out again. And every time I'd try, he'd stop me, saying, come on, no cheap highs around here. This time I'm sitting opposite the courtyard and I'm looking at him and thinking, gee, it's, uh, this isn't what, this isn't the being, it's, the, it's inside him and inside me. And at that moment, this old man rushes across the courtyard and touches my feet. And I said to him, thank you, you know, I honor him for honoring me. I said, why did you do that? He said, Maharaji sent me over to do that. He said, Ramdas and I understand each other perfectly. That's at the moment when I'm thinking, he's nothing special. And it seems to me interesting that in the Illustrated Weekly in India, which put out a, uh, the Illustrated Weekly is like Life magazine, and it put out an issue on holy beings in India, present and past, and it had big spreads on all the ones we've ever heard of. And in the whole, and then there were all these small ones through the villages, and in the whole magazine, Maharaji wasn't even mentioned. Now, as a Western PR man, my first thought is, I guess my guru wasn't as big as I thought he was. <laughs> and the next thought is, oh, far out. Can you imagine doing it without collecting all that stuff, without building that thing? Can you separate the external trip from the essence. Maharaji was a, um, I can't label him because it's not labelable, but he was connected with the tradition of Hanuman. And Hanuman is a monkey. Hanuman is the monkey who serves Ram. And Hanuman is known as the breath of Ram. He is the purest servant imaginable. At one point, Ram says to Hanuman, who are you? And Hanuman says, when I don't know who I am, I serve you.
when I recognize you, I realize that you and I are one. And when I know who you, when I know who I am, there's only one of us. It's like that Hanuman was the fingers of the hand of God. Hanuman was, uh, in a way, what would be called a pure statement of Dharma. Now, uh, a lot of us are working with the concept of Dharma these days. And there is Dharma with a little d and Dharma with a big d. Because from where we start, once we understand that there is a game that is a little more profound than our personal gratification, than optimizing pleasure in this lifetime for ourselves, we start to reflect on what our part is in this bigger game. And because we in the West think so much, we tend to think our way through this thing. And we often, by thinking our way through, find ourselves in these very bizarre predicaments where we've thought our way into what we think would be a dharmic act, that is, an act consistent with God's will in the not my but thy will, but it's a head trip on our part and it feels lousy. Again, I, I, you know, <laughs> Krishna Das has traveled with me a lot when I have been on the road. And there is a, this story that I keep telling because it always is so perfect, but we both heard it so many times. And I, I laugh every time, too, and he says he laughs every time. So you've all heard it, but you can laugh every time, too, because I'll tell it anyway, because it's about Zumbach the tailor. I can't not tell it. I'm sorry. It's just uh, Maharaji's telling me to tell the joke. That's my cop-out. See, I always say he said it. You know, don't come on to me. I don't have anything to do with it. It's not my trip. If there is one of you that hasn't heard it, for you I am telling. Zumbach, um, uh, this man went to, to uh, Taylor Zumbach to get a very expensive suit because Zumbach was one of the best suit makers around. I won't tell this with a Yiddish accent because it, it's... <laughs> and so um, he comes in for the final fitting and he puts on the suit and it turns out that this sleeve is two inches shorter than this sleeve. So he says, Zumbach versus Dos. This sleeve is two inches longer than the other one. Zumbach says, there's nothing wrong with the suit, it's the way you're standing says, if you stand like this, it fits perfectly. And then the fellow looks in the mirror and he, he notices a big bunch in the collar. And he says, Zumbach, what about that? Zumbach says, look, your head should be down like this. And slowly he gets the man into a very contorted position until the suit fits perfectly. And the man leaves wearing his new suit and he gets on the subway 
and somebody comes up to him and says, what a beautiful suit. And the fellow now can hardly speak. And he says, I bet Zumbach the tailor made that suit. And the man said, how did you know? And the fellow said, well, only a tailor of the quality of Zumbach could fit a man as crippled as you are. And the reason that I have to keep telling that joke is because so many of us have gotten caught in Zumbach's suit as we've head-tripped our way into the holy journey, right? And you meet people, I'm a happy person. I love everyone. I don't eat meat. It's exquisite. <laughs> it's not what's said, it's the quality of the way it's said. It's always said with that slight uh, moralistic overlay of, I think I ought to, so I am, but I don't know, it doesn't feel quite right, but it must be good because everybody says it is. And, For example, Maharaji said to me, uh, Ramdas, don't touch money. So I said to him, uh, well, Maharaji, how about just for gas for the car and for food? He says, okay. <laughs> so, so a few weeks later, he said to me, Ramdas. <laughs> That's the word for money. Money, no. I said, Maharaji, what about money for gas? Because with Maharaji, it gets repeated many times. I said, Maharaji, what about money for gas and for food? He says, nay. Okay. So I was in India, so I, uh, what I did was I took all my money and I gave it to one of the, my guru brothers who then followed me around, and when I got on the bus, he paid the bus driver, so, <laughs> which is a certain kind of a cop-out, you might say, right? When I came back to America, I found it quite difficult to not touch money, and I ended up touching money, which I do. But the interesting effect of his words are that every time I touch money, I hear him saying, don't touch money. And I work with that in such a way that I'm hearing that what is the touching of it is the touching with your mind. It's a certain kind of an attachment to money. And I'm just struggling with that on and on. And people say, well, isn't he a guru? And I say, yeah. Well, didn't he tell you not to touch money? Yeah. Well, are you touching money? Yeah. Well, don't you do what your guru says? Yeah. And I just look 
innocently. Now, to me, that all feels all right. Because my connection with Maharaji is in a place where one of the things, um, I'll give you an example of what I'm about to say. Um, there was a sadhu, a very lovely sadhu, who many of the Westerners loved very much. And once in Allahabad, um, I had always felt about this sadhu that though he was very lovely, there was something about him that was sort of hustling a little bit, just a little bit. And um, he was trying uh, something with me that didn't feel quite right. And I just uh, was sort of pulling back all the time. I thought he had a lot of light and was very beautiful, but that's true of many beings. And that was... Uh, so I pulled up to the house Maharaji was staying at, and there was a little fence. We were in a rickshaw. There were three of us. And there was this sadhu, this man, sitting under a tree outside the gate. He wasn't in the house of Maharaji. The other people in this rickshaw jumped off and went over and sort of touched his feet. I paid the rickshaw, and I walked over. And the man stood up, and we pranamed to one another. And then we stood there looking at each other. Now here was the predicament. Here was a gate and a fence. I was about to walk in the gate. He was standing outside the gate. I didn't know why. And I felt that since he had stood up when I came along, it was in some way my responsibility to take him inside. But there was something in me that didn't feel right about doing that. And I couldn't do it. And I just stood there. Pranaming and smiling and pranaming and smiling, but I couldn't say, would you come in? Because there is a thing, I don't know how to say it, but there was something about purity that determined who I could bring to my guru. I don't know how to say it or whether it's judgeable or whether it's wrong or what it is. It's just that's the way it happened. It's just like some evenings I can never talk about Maharaji because the audience won't let it happen because there's a judgmental quality in the audience that makes me just, it won't come out. And at this point, an Indian man rushed out from inside and he made a big thing about this sadhu being there and he took him inside and I thought, uh-oh, I blew it. Here's an important sadhu. I should have taken him in. And I sort of cowered my way in and I sort of sat in the outer room and I noticed that this sadhu now was sitting in the outer room. He wasn't in with Maharaji. And shortly after, he was gone. A little later, Maharaji called me in, and he was sitting surrounded by Indian devotees, and he said, um, look at Ramdas." He said, he's very learned. He can probably speak well, but he doesn't know anything about people. And everybody's agreeing, yes, Maharaji, he doesn't know anything about people. And I'm thinking, I must have really blown it with this guy. This is probably the guy outside was Krishna. <laughs> See? It was Krishna in drag who came to test me, and I blew it, right? It's a, there are dozens of those stories, you know, where, you know, somebody came along just to run you through and you blew it, you know. You, you met him on uh, Telegraph Avenue and you didn't give him a dime or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
And Maharaj, he kept repeating, and I felt worse and worse. He kept saying, no, he knows a lot and he can speak well, but he doesn't, he really. You know, he just doesn't know people. And I kept agreeing with him, and everybody was agreeing, and I was, it was, everybody was totally in agreement that I didn't know people. And then he says, can you imagine, he would have let that sadhu in from outside, and that man wasn't pure. And I went through a, what? What? Well, and he looked at me and he hit me on the head. And what he was continually saying to me was, trust your heart. You're getting the cues, trust them. We have a tendency to not trust them unless they're written in a book with a leather cover or a cloth cover, or unless somebody that looks important says them. And actually, every time they say them, what happens is we say, boy, right on. And how do we know it's right on? We must know. And if you already know, what did you need to read it for? To reassure yourself that you knew. And that's the far out aspect of, quote, the guru trip. That you, that those of us that have followed the path of an external guru, which is for some people under certain conditions, for those people you go and you worship this man or woman and this body and you love it and you hang out and you cling to it and you sing to it and you bedeck it with flowers and you just dream about it and think about it and, and then Slowly, it and you come closer and closer together until you begin to experience it. It's like making love. And at the moment of where the orgasm is approaching, where there are no longer two people, but it merges and there is merely a process going on. But there are not two separate self-consciousnesses at that moment. Until after a while, what you begin to find is that if you quiet your mind down just a bit, you begin to experience a force in you designing or directing or defining or intuitively validating your actions. And more and more you say, somebody says, why did you do that? And you say, I can't give you a rational reason why I did it. I say it intuitively feels right on, or it feels in the Tao, or it feels harmonious, or, you know, it's far out because when I was a social scientist, oh, I still am, but when I was being a social scientist, intuition was a pretty dirty word. Even though Einstein had said, I didn't arrive at my understanding of the rational laws of the, of the law, the fundamental laws of the universe through my rational mind. He implied that it was intuition. Now, how do you connect with that inner you could call it guru, you could call it wisdom, you could call it the Atman. You could not call it anything. 
The way of approaching it is through space, through giving space. That is, when um, somebody does something to you, the reaction between the stimulus and the reaction, there's just a little tiny bit of space. And that space is the perspective that allows you to see what's happening. For example, if I'm sitting with my mala, my beads, just doing ram, 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 Somebody comes up to me and says, you really blew it the other night. You were terrible. I just thought I'd tell you that. Now, uh, ego in me will go, well, there were all kinds of circumstances that you demanded that I had, you know. But in me, there is also this ram, 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 And all I see is Maharaji in drag coming up to run me through. Go ahead, I'll catch you this time. Because from where my, according to my method, everybody I meet is the same being, just with different faces. It's all central casting. Like everybody here, well, most everybody here thinks they're somebody or other. Behind who you think you are, we are. And as long as I'm busy thinking I'm somebody, then if you do something to who you think I am, who I think I am responds, and we get into a mechanical runoff, which there's really nothing happening at all except just mechanics. Now, giving that space doesn't determine what the response will be, but the resp- I might hit the guy. I don't know. But that space, that perspective, which is what the use of mantra is about in daily life, it's what's called meditation in action, in Trungpa's words. That space just makes the whole thing start to be tuned to a different plane of reality. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.